so what is it about New York that you got afraid of or you wanted to stay away from? Well, I was worried they were going to go broke. Like New York City is the number one city in the United States and ranked by people leaving that city. So everything I had predicted in this one article in 2020, which unfortunately tens of millions of people read that article, everybody in New York City wanted to kill me. I was getting, how many would you say? I was getting like 10,000 hate tweets a second against me. I mean, it was ridiculous. And then Jerry Seinfeld wrote a full page op-ed in the New York Times, the only op-ed he's ever written, trashing me. Really? Yeah. I love Jerry. I love You got Jer- beef with Jerry Seinfeld? I loved Jerry as well. Hold on, hold on. Cause I, now I really just need to find out who you are, that you would make a, a suggestion about New York. One of, one of the biggest comedians ever writes a whole article about you, not a whole city hates you. You must have, must be a powerful person. Welcome to another edition of the Social Proof Podcast, man. We find dope people that did dope stuff. I'm excited about this one right here, though. Uh, the story of success, failure, super success, lose it all, success some more, and uh, just someone who has a wide, a wide range of good stuff you're good at. Well, thank you very much for for having me here. Uh, I love, by the way, the name of the podcast, the Social Proof Podcast, because it's like. You're giving me social proof by me being on here. You're inviting me on here, so I feel important. But maybe also some of your guests, not me, give you social proof. <laughs> oh, 100%. So, no, yeah. you for sure give me social proof. Oh, Absolutely. well, I appreciate you saying that. Man, and uh, I'm going to just be honest because you've done some amazing things in uh, business, and I'm going to use this as a free coaching session. So, All right. I don't want you to you're feel gonna, like you I'm using me. you. I just want to tell you. You're going you're, you're to coach me. So. Uh, well, I haven't like made the 10, then lost eight figures then made it again so i need you to figure i need you to tell me how, you how to lose that. the money i will i will tell you how to do that no problem <laughs> james Altucher, that you're here man how are you good and now we live in the same neck of the woods like i yeah. lived in new york all my life and now atlanta welcome welcome to the thank city, you man. what made you move to atlanta because new york i love new york i was born there spent my entire adult life there but it I could see the writing on the wall. It was going to have problems that are not, hopefully they're solvable. They haven't been solvable yet. And it, and I I made just data as make my choice. Like I looked, where, where was everybody moving and how were the housing prices doing? So everyone's moving to Miami, Austin, you know, a couple other places. But they were also moving to Atlanta and housing prices hadn't yet gone up. They had doubled in Miami. They had gone up huge in Austin. But Atlanta had, was kind of flat. And so for you know, it just became like the mathematical choice. But since moving here, I love it. I love Atlanta. Well, so what is it about New York that you you got afraid of or you wanted to stay away from? Well, I was worried they were going to go broke because of... The uh, state? Co- yeah, no, the city. Yeah. Because New York City needs $100 billion just to open the doors on January 1st. How are they making that from like everybody, like from like every city from taxes? But if everybody is leaving, like New York City is the number one city in the United States and ranked by people leaving that city. Mm. So if people are leaving, how are you going to raise how are you going to raise more money from taxes? And that means your infrastructure has to disappear or, or shrink. And, you know, then more people leave and it's a cycle. So Eric Adams, the mayor, I don't want to make this podcast about New York, but Eric Adams, the mayor, who's a great friend of mine. He had to recently announce they have to let go of 2,500 police officers, 1,200 sanitation workers. 
that makes quality of life worse. So everything I had predicted in this one article in 2020, which unfortunately tens of millions of people read that article and everybody in New York City, so this is the real reason I left, everybody in New York City wanted to kill me. I was getting, probably, how many would you say? I was getting like 10,000 hate tweets a second against me. I mean, it was ridiculous. And then Jerry Seinfeld wrote a full page op-ed in the New York Times, the only op-ed he's ever written, trashing me. Like really? Yeah. I love Jerry. I love you got Jer beef with Jerry Seinfeld. I love Jerry. I loved Jerry as well. But then I wake up one morning and I thought everything had died down about this article. It was two weeks later, but on a Monday morning or a Sunday morning, uh, suddenly everyone's texting me like, Hey putts, how's it going? And I'm like, why is suddenly everybody <laughs> calling me like this 1930s insult <laughs> that like, I had never even like heard anyone say that word before. And apparently Jerry Seinfeld, that was in Jerry Seinfeld's title, like this guy's a putz or something like that. And, and then people blew up the, Andrew Cuomo sent his article to 10 million people on his email list. Uh, you know, the, the article was blown up to a building size and someone used it as scaffolding his article. But my oh, problem goodness. was guys like Rush Limbaugh, Glenn Beck, they were reading my article word for word on their shows. And New York City also, you know, everybody has one set of beliefs and no disagreement is allowed. And I didn't ask any of these people to read my articles, but that made me guilty by association in, in New York City. People would, I owned a comedy club at the time. People were vandalizing my comedy club. And you knew it was like, like, they, like it was in pink chalk all over the window. Owner hates New York City, which I don't. I love New York City. That's why I wanted to help them solve their problems. Owner hates New York City. Uh, don't go to this comedy club. It was in pink chalk. So, you know, it was some mom like strolling her baby around and then just <laughs> took out the pink chalk. Like, oh, that, that guy owns this club. And... Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, because I now I really just need to find out who you are, that you would make a a suggestion about New York, one of one of the biggest comedians ever writes a whole article about you, not a whole city hates you. You must have you must be a powerful person. I don't know about that. Uh, We're gonna you, find out, James, because if I said, "Hey, I don't really like Atlanta. The traffic sucks," nobody cares. Nobody it, cares. it depends how you say it. Like I think. <laughs> I think the way I said it, I was so concerned that these problems were real problems. And I'm, I, I write a lot. So I, you know, you develop a, you, everybody in life develops different skills. So since, since I was a kid, I've been writing every single day. So if I'm worried about something and I, ex, I express it in a forceful way, everyone shares it. Yeah. And soon they were sharing it to people like Joe Rogan and, you know, Glenn Beck and, Fox News and, and CNBC and MSNBC. So, and then, so I, was, I did the whole round of like TV from that. Everyone hated me in, in New York. You know, family members wrote articles trying to trash me. It was just insane what was happening. So I was getting depressed. And then finally, thought it would die down. Jerry Seinfeld, I don't know why he did it. <laughs> He's even performed at my comedy club, but he, uh, he really, he really tore me apart. And he didn't make any rebuttal to my argument. Yeah. <laughs> Just trashed me. Meanwhile, you know, Eric Adams, who's the mayor, we were talking regularly about what these problems were and what his solutions were. He was running for mayor at the time. And I didn't agree with his solution. He said, New, York's, New Yorkers will want to pay more taxes. And I'm like, I don't think anybody wants to pay more taxes. Yeah. And, you know, so the problems are hard. So are you like an entrepreneur, an economist? I know you're a comedian. 
Okay, James Altucher, how do you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm James Altucher. <laughs> no, I've, I've been a lot of things. Like, you've done a lot of things. You, you know, you pursue your passions, you pursue your interests. I like to diversify subcultures. First and foremost, I've been a writer, but I've also started many businesses. Uh, I've, been, I've also written a lot about financial stuff. I've written a lot of personal improvement stuff. Sometimes people know me from finance. Sometimes people know me from comedy. Sometimes people, I'm on a, what I call a quest right now to be, you know, I'm a... a, 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 a hmm? Sorry. Go for it. You edit? You edit it out? Uh, maybe. I don't know. It's cool. We're all, all right. We're all human. If I ever uh, have anything in my face, just tell me, bro. And I'll just... If there's like a tarantula <laughs> about it. Uh, you know, I, right now I'm on a quest. In the 90s, I was a young, strong, tournament-ranked chess master. So I'm on a quest now to see if someone my age, after a 25-year break, can still return to their childhood love. And so far, it's not working out. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I like to go on quests that leads me to different subcultures and different adventures. So but I guess uh, for some people, I'm an entrepreneur. For some people, I'm, I know a lot about economics and finance. For some people, I'm just a writer. They don't know anything about my other stuff. For some people, I'm a comedian. They don't know anything about my other stuff and, and on and on. So um, you wrote 25 books, right? What's your most successful one? Or Yeah, there's a book called Choose Yourself, which still to this day, I'm really grateful and blessed. Like I get emails or letters every day you know, thanking me for how that book changed their lives. And it's about times when I've failed and gone broke or whatever and how I got out of it after, even though I was depressed, even though I was not motivated. And and it's really stories about that and what happened to me and, and what it's like to go from having a lot of money to going broke and then trying to f figure it out. But also I realized, like, you're you're a great example of what I mean by choose yourself. So... I remember there was one point I was really pitching TV shows and I was doing well. I was having meetings with every studio. Steven Spielberg was like backing all my ideas and, mm. but he needed a studio to kind of like give a green light. And, uh, uh, and then, but I was just getting frustrated with rejection. And the same thing happens if you write a book, if you want a promotion at work, if you want to work in a certain industry, I realized the best times in my life is when I didn't wait by the phone for someone to choose me. Mm. I had to choose myself. So you could have gone the route like, oh, I really hope I get a show on Atlanta's top radio station. Or you could say, I'm going to start my own show, rent my own space, get my guests, do it the way I want to do it, and have a really popular, more popular than any dumb radio show. I'm going to have a great popular show. And that's what you did. That's what yeah. this show is. Yeah, so sure. that's choosing yourself. It's the most pleasurable activity for in in terms of career building and and you know self improvement and self satisfaction that you could have. That I created this. I did it. I didn't wait. I used to work at HBO, and I was pitching shows to them all the time, and they were always saying no. It was I know I was. They've even apologized to me like thirty years later that uh, <laughs> they didn't do some of my show ideas because there was always politics and bureaucracy. And uh, but now. You could choose yourself. I was always waiting for them to choose me. Yeah. And you could choose yourself now. You could do a show on YouTube and it'll be so much more popular than any TV show. Mm -hmm. For sure. All right, so I want, I want to like really get into like how you, because it seems like you have relationships with everybody. You grew up in New York, right? Yeah, I grew up 
born in New York, grew up like around New York, New Jersey. What part of New Jersey? Uh, uh, near New Brunswick, near like, um, that's like in central New Jersey. Yeah, I'm from Willingboro. From where? Willingboro, New Jersey. Oh, I don't know. Burlington County. Okay, so what's it? What you? Hey, nobody knows Willingboro. Well, what what you know? What you know about? Um, New Jersey is that everybody only knows the straight the towns that are on the straight line between their house and New York City. Right, right. <laughs> so, like, if you, if I even went five minutes like left or right, I wouldn't know yeah, what towns are sure. there. But so, yeah, like uh, Camden is like right next to Willingboro, Burlington, right ne- right next to Philly. Forget it. Man. The other thing is, I was north of you. <laughs> yes. You never go south. In yeah, New yeah, Jersey. yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. North Jersey and South Jersey, like two different states. I, but. I lived right dead center between New York City and Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to Philadelphia until I was 18. Yeah. That was the first time in Philadelphia. <laughs> but New York City every weekend. Got you. So well, tell me about your home life growing up as a kid. Uh, very just, I, <gasps> you know, I was all the time just wanting to go into New York City. Um, everything I was interested in was there. And everything else was boring. Like suburbs are great when you're older because you feel like it's safe, it's quiet, it's spacious. Um, but when you're a kid, you need action and adventure. You need to risk yourself a little. Mm-hmm. The younger you are, the more risks you can afford to take. So you can't were, were be you as risky. How, were you were you how you are now? Like, are there traces of your childhood and who you are now, the way you just go after stuff and maybe you're opinionated and I'm just going to try something. Were you always like that? Yeah, I think I was always like that. I don't think it had to do with the way I grew up. I was always just uh, obsessive. Like I'm very obsessive. When I get interested in something, it's like 12 hours a day and I can't turn it on and off and then suddenly it'll just turn it off and I'll be interested in something else. (laughs) And that's all... Like, if you give me a year of my life, I could tell you exactly what I was doing 12 hours a day. And I, I've never mixed it. Like, I never had two interests. I would always have one interest that would consume me for year, two years. Some things evolved, like writing, I kept with for all my life. But most things, it spikes and then falls. I mean, you're not going to call yourself a genius. Would other people call you a genius? I don't know. Some people call me an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's a trait of... Like someone's ability to lock into something and obsess about it. And you're saying it wasn't like you're trying to, okay, stay focused. Let me lock in on this. You're just saying once you take hold of something, you just can't let it go. Right. That's right. A, I that's can't. an amazing trait. It is, but it's, it's sometimes painful because obviously you want to get good at something because you're bad at it. And so along the way, you're bad at something for a, most of the time you do something, you're bad at it. Mm. And as you get better, there becomes this weird period where you're good enough to know how bad you are. And that's a real <laughs> frustrating period uh, that you have to work through to, to get to the other side. And I always was like really obsessed with getting to the other side of that. So business, business is a classic thing where there's no skill called business. It's a, business is a combination of micro skills like, like marketing, sales, leadership, ideation, execution, um, networking, there's a bunch of skills together that you have to get good at to be good at business. And when I was first starting in business, I was bad at all of them, but I didn't know that until much later. <laughs> and, and the same thing with investing, like investing is, Oh, I, I think the internet's going to be huge. And so you throw your money all over the place, but you don't know how to value companies. You don't know, like 90% of investing is managing risk. I didn't know that when I started, I just thought I'm going to, I'm just going to become a billionaire from investing. And the opposite happened. I went to zero. So I had to learn. And so I got obsessed. I had to learn 
how to invest. And it's amazing to me when I, you know, see professional investors now on, on CNBC or whatever, how few of them know the history of investing. Like if you want to get good at something, you got to know the history of it. You got to know the history of, like we were talking before the podcast about different interview styles. You have to know like who did what, why. Yeah. So you have to study these things. And so many professionals don't, you could tell they never were obsessed. They're just, this is what they do. And they're not really that great at it. That's why in most professions, 95% are mediocre to bad, but maybe like 1% to 5% are great. Because only a small portion of people are going to be obsessed. Yeah, and they're going to get through that period where they were bad. And they, and they learn, they meta-learn how to take something and get through that bad period. What, so as far back as you can remember, what was the first thing you remember yourself being so obsessed about that you couldn't let it go? Well, I mean, when I was, I mean, we could go all the way back. When I was six years old, I was obsessed with Greek and Norse mythology. And my parents, we'd all go, when, when we go to a, a party, let's say with other families, my parents would always have to tell me, don't talk about Greek gods <laughs> to the other little kids. And, and then I, I lived, where I lived, there was, um, you know, it was kind of a uh, mostly like Jewish or Christian community. And, uh, you know, parents, I was six years old, parents would call my parents and like, it like the Jewish, I remember one time this Jewish mom of one of my friends called my mom and I'm, I grew up Jewish, called my mom and said, tell James to stop talking little Gregory about Jesus. <laughs> like he's talking about Jesus to Greg and Greg thinks Jesus is a superhero now or Jewish. So... <laughs> That was like the first thing I was obsessed with, but I was like all I read or talked about. Yeah. So, and as an adult, I would say writing, I got obsessed with for a very long time and it's really hard to get good at that skill. So it was 10 years of rejection of, of getting good at that. Yeah. So did you go to college? Yeah. Where? Unfortunately. So I went to Cornell undergrad. I got thrown out of grad school at Carnegie Mellon for computer science. And, but now I just think college is a total scam. Like I begged my... Out? Uh, I got thrown out because that's when I started getting obsessed with writing. So I was supposed to be studying computer science. Instead, I was using the scholarship and the and the office that they gave me to just write all day long. I would write, write, I would write minimum three to four thousand words a day, and then I failed every class and I got thrown out. Goodness gracious! Yeah, and the professors didn't even want to throw me out. I one of my professors at the time now is a dean over at Georgia Tech, yeah. and. He told me, he, he, he said, we all voted and I argued for you to stay. Um, but everybody was pointing out, you're taking up a valuable scholarship yeah. and not doing the work. So, and Merrick, this, this guy who was Dean, he had to actually write the letter throwing me out. And, uh, but now we're like best friends. There's a lot of things you can do with $500. I mean, you can have a night out with your significant other you could buy some really expensive shoes. Well, really nice shoes are about double $500. Um, you could buy a course where you can learn something for $500. But I have something better for you to do with the $500. I want to meet with you every single morning for the rest of your life. Well, maybe not the rest of your life, but every morning, Monday through Friday, for the rest of the year. I have information and game that have allowed me to build a successful business, business, a successful community, and a successful life all the way around. 
But I want to share that with you. But the only way we can accomplish this is not me selling you a course, not me giving you a one-on-one consultation, because even with that, you'll get the information, but you'll need more. I want to meet with you every single morning. Now, would I meet with someone every morning for 500 bucks for a year? And the answer is yes. Actually, we've been doing this thing since 2017. We have what's called the morning meetup. Every single month we have a theme, whether it's social media, whether it's motivation, whether it's strategy, whatever it is, we have a theme for the month. And every morning in that month, we have a conversation around that topic. And I am giving a wealth of knowledge, not only myself, but a lot of friends, a lot of people that you see on this podcast, they join every single week. So you need a community of people that you can grow with and you need a coach. I'm your coach. The Morning Meetup is your community. Go to themorningmeetup.com. It's $499 and I will meet you every single morning for an entire year. Give it a shot. Like what you did after that, because I feel like this obsession uh, trait that you have is uh, kind of like the secret weapon. But I think a lot of people are... They, they need to figure out how to get this. But you did say something that college is a scam, which I agree. But I think you probably have a really good answer for why you're saying that. Well, I mean, there's so many answers, but let's just take the basic financial one. Uh, tuition has gone up faster than inflation every year since 1965. So it's not like on average it's gone up faster than inflation. It's gone up every year faster than inflation since 1965 or since 1948, actually. Uh, and who knows the reasons why? There are a lot of possible reasons. But one thing is that the government, you know, backs student loans. So if someone doesn't pay back their student loan, the college president knows he's still getting paid. So there's no risk for him to jack up tuitions. Mm. And so for what you get, meanwhile, you know, America is getting ranked lower and lower around the world in terms of higher education yeah. and the skills and jobs that people get after college. So, you know, for the money you pay, the, these little kids, 18 years old, and I say little kids because their brain, the part of their brain that manages risk is not even fully formed yet for good reason, for good evolutionary reasons. But uh, they're taking these loans out for 200,000. I can't get a loan for $200,000 right now, <laughs> my, but my 18 year old daughter can. And it's amazing. They just, Oh, here's free money for you. They don't understand. Yeah. And then they go to college. It's unclear what they're learning that they couldn't just learn by reading a book or, you know, like <laughs> online education is so much better right now. I mean, I could learn about, let's say I'm interested in cooking. I could learn cooking from Wolfgang Puck on Masterclass, or I could learn, you know, about writing from John Grisham on Masterclass, or, you know, that's just one site among many. And what do you really, okay, for networking and connections and you want to interact with future successful people, college could be good for that. But guess what? Even there, if you don't go to college, but decide to work as a janitor at SpaceX or Google or whatever, you're going to make so many valuable, many more valuable connections than you would at college. Mm. So, and, it and did build work up. for a minute though, right? Hmm? Yeah, maybe um, in 1900. <laughs> so, <laughs> I thought when my, when my parents, when they were around, so I would have guessed probably the 70s, 80s, college was a good idea, right? Because if you get a degree, then you get a job. No? Well, that's just it, is that all the employers have college degrees. So they only want to hire people like themselves, so they hire other people with college degrees. So it became known that if you want a job, you got to get a college degree because everyone else has got one. And also employers, they don't want to think a lot. They want shortcuts. So let's look at 
uh, who went to college and the ranking of their college and will filter out at least the people who don't have a college degree. Just like colleges use SATs as a filter and that's like a stupid filter. So, you know, <laughs> and that's why I always encourage the, the, the choosing yourself strategy because then you don't need a college degree to validate your skills and intelligence. Let me give you an example. I went undergraduate at Cornell, which is supposedly a great school for computer science and that's, I was obsessed with computer science and programming. I, I feel like I did well, and I, I, I learned how to program really well. I could build and take apart, take apart a computer and put it back together. But then when I actually had a real job in the real world, I was so bad at programming, they had to send me to remedial programming classes so I could get good enough to be as good as one of their other employees. Like, really? Because there wasn't real-world programming that I was doing at college. I was just doing, like... I don't know. I don't know what the hell they had me doing now. Like when I look about it, but then I got obsessed again with computers because I was really learning it in a, in a real world. What's up, family? This episode is sponsored by eBay Authenticity Guarantee. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you know you're getting the real deal. Whether you're looking for a head-turning handbag or a watch that says it all, I mean jewelry that makes you look like the gym, or sneakers and streetwear that make every step feel fly. I remember wanting the two tone Rolex. It was beautiful. Jubilee band. I remember seeing it on TV. I remember seeing it on successful people. And what made me fall in love with it was the style, the swagger, the elegance of the person wearing it. Not even the watch. It was the vibe of the person wearing it. And I remember when I first got it, the feeling was incredible. I felt accomplished. These days, to know for sure you're getting the real deal, you got to go straight to eBay. When searching, just look for the blue check mark. It will say authenticity guarantee that means when you buy it you can be confident that it's authenticated by real experts ensure your next purchase is the real deal by visiting ebay.com for terms that's ebay.com uh, scenario got it got it so you went to cornell undergrad what you what you major in undergrad I, I was just there, brother. Like I just picked something. I remember going on the computer, and my my Google question was, "What career pays the most out of college?" And one of them came. What's so funny? <laughs> it came up like business oh, management or business something. And so I took that, but then I didn't like the classes, so I stopped that. Then I went into my friend who was real dumb, but he was graduating. And I said, what do you do? He said, I did uh, telecommunications. I said, oh, I'm going to do that. But then I just dropped out. It just, it just wasn't for me. That, that's good. I encourage all my kids to drop out. One of them actually <laughs> did, and I'm really proud of her. <laughs> so. So, so you did get a job in your field. Yeah. Uh, computer programming. Yeah. I use like what I call the backdoor strategy. So I wanted to work. So I, was a, a, I viewed myself as a writer. I was still going through that phase where I was bad, but trying to be good. And I got a job at HBO, but I wouldn't have gotten there on the merits of my entertainment ability. I got in there. My title was junior programmer analyst. So we were even in another building than the HBO building, but I worked for HBO. Yeah. And then I used that to parlay my way into, you know, meetings that I was more interested in, like meetings about TV shows and yeah. stuff like that. There was nobody else from the IT department doing what I was doing. Like I really was focused on getting into the entertainment side of HBO. Okay. What year is this? This was uh, 1994 I started at HBO. 94. So fresh out of college, 94. Yeah, fresh out of being thrown to grad school. 
Gotcha. Okay. Okay. And oh, because you're a writer, obviously HBO. I know I could maybe get one of my writings into a movie or something yeah, like that. Yeah. Like okay. And this is 1994. Putting in, in context, J.P. Morgan uh, also offered me a job. They offered me eighty thousand a year. So it was, was for me. It was like, oh my god, like I'm gonna be rich on eighty thousand a year. And HBO offered forty thousand a year, and I took the HBO job because you you can't when you're young. You cannot, you got to do things for the experience. You can't, if you, yeah. once you, the reason people offer more money is because they know that what they're getting in exchange is your dreams. <laughs> then they're going to throw those away and now you got to do what they tell you to do. So I still was like, allowed to hold on to my dreams for taking a job half the salary what I was offered. Oh, I had to take some job, I didn't have any money. And when did your biggest break come? Working at? HBO or like when did when did you become somebody? I, I would say my first break was at HBO because here's what happened. This is 1994. The web was it a fad? Was it a thing? Nobody knew. Nobody knew what it was going to be. <laughs> like every, a lot of people were saying, this is just a fad for professors. Like nobody likes yeah. the internet or the web. And so I'm like, no, no, this is going to be the biggest thing ever. And so I transformed. HBO didn't know anything about the web. They knew nothing. They were a cable company. So I remember one guy telling me, James, stop with this internet stuff. Let the cable guys do what they do. Mm -hmm. And uh, so then HBO, I convinced HBO to buy HBO.com. They didn't have it. They had to spend $250,000 for it. Back, even back then, there was a company wow. in Atlanta actually called HBO and Company that sold medical supplies that owned HBO.com. Uh -huh. And um, then I convinced HBO, you got to make a website. Like, and and don't just make it a marketing website like everyone else is doing. Why don't you do original web shows just like you do these amazing, original, gritty TV shows? Like HBO was the first one doing mm. that kind of adult-style programming, you know, uh, show programming. And so the CEO was like, I don't care. Do whatever you want. So I go back to my boss and said, the CEO told me I had to do this. And <laughs> so I, I pitched an idea to them called 3 a.m., which was me interviewing people at three in the morning on a Wednesday night in New York City. Not a Saturday night where everyone's out anyway, but a Wednesday night. Why are you out at uh, 3 a.m. on a Wednesday night? And it was never anything good. Like nobody was up to anything good at 3 a.m. Wednesday night. And I did that for three years for them. But then I got, my name got out there. So other people started coming up to me. Can you do a website with, you know, like that for us. And like, we're, I'm talking utility companies, AmericanExpress.com. Hold, hold on, I'm sorry. You were the host of the show. Yeah. But people were coming to you not to host the show, but to do the technical stuff for them. Yeah. Like at the time, your idea. at the time, there was like five people in New York City who knew how to make a website. And I was fortunate <laughs> to be one of them. But I wasn't a business guy. So the, the real smart guys who were doing it, they built up really nice big businesses doing it. I was just, I really just wanted to make a TV show. And, uh, but, uh, you know, American Express, you know, American Express wanted to make a website. They didn't have one. So they asked their accounting firm, Arthur Anderson, to help them. And the accounting firm didn't know how to make one. They asked an ad agency. The ad agency didn't know how. They asked some digital consulting company. They didn't know how. Wow. They asked me and I had never had a single dime in my life I had never had any money in my bank account and I made like, you know, $50,000 doing AmericanExpress.com. Hey. Arthur Anderson charged millions. I got 50,000. I made the whole website. So, <laughs> um, and then I'm like, well, maybe I should do this for other people. And well, I had a full-time job. I couldn't quit my full-time job for something risky like a starting a business. So 
at I'd work all day at HBO, and then all night I made websites for American Express. Uh, every every movie studio I made their website, whether it was Warner Brothers, New Line Cinema, wow. Miramax, October Films. Every you could probably tell by the way I look. Every gangster rap record label I made their website. <laughs> How old were you at this point? Uh, 26, 27. 26, 27 years and, old. <laughs> and so I did Loud Records. I did Bad Boy Records. I did Death Row, Interscope, uh, Jive Re I did some stuff for Jive Records. Um, I don't even know which one still exists. Loud and Bad Boy exist. Obviously, Interscope, Death Row doesn't really. Um, so I was really, like, I did all the Wu-Tang Clan's uh, web stuff. Uh, I just, I, I did the hundreds and hundreds of websites as a company. And I grew, yeah. you know, I didn't know anything about making, I made basic, basic mistakes running a company, but I was really good. I was so excited. I was obsessed with the internet. I was so excited that people don't see that this is going to be everything. And I somehow knew it. And wow. so I was able to sell anybody that you need a website. And I was right. And I just, and I focus on entertainment, but we would do like other the entertainment ones were cheaper. Like we would do other ones to make money, but um, did but we you, did you start building out a company where you had other people building them? Yeah, yeah. So finally, uh, finally, I I got, had enough money. I got office space. I got up to like 30, 40 employees. Wow. And by the way, I had outsourced HBO's website to my own company. And whether that <laughs> oh, I was working there. Whether that was fair or not. <laughs> I don't know, but but at one point H, HBO was so impressed with the results they asked me, "Look, can we buy that company that's doing all our web stuff?" Oh, wow. And I said, "Yes, you can, but I got to tell you something." <laughs> and so I told them that was my company, and they said, "No problem, you know we understand. There's there's like four companies doing this, so you're one of them, and we knew you were you great were still anyway." Working there, hmm? you're still working. I was still there. working there, making peanuts. Yeah, making compared peanuts. Compared to your your company. Yeah, I was afraid. I was afraid that if I wasn't at HBO, nobody would return my phone calls anymore. Because it's like, I'm James from HBO, <laughs> as opposed thing. to I'm James from some crappy small company. Right. I wanted to meet a girl who better work at HBO. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't really have a lot going for me. So that was like a critical thing. And, you know, so, so I, I told them. And then eventually they said, look, you know, we still want to use your company, but why don't you just work at your company full time? And so I, when I made the jump where I, when I could finally replicate my salary at HBO plus what I was making at my company, then, uh, then I did it. Gotcha. Okay. So you're spending this portion of time. Now you just, you're building a, a web development company. Yeah. And obviously huge clients. Yeah. How long did you run that company? Uh, well, I, you know, my, my sister was in junior high school and she was learning how to make websites in a class. So I'm like, I'm charging, let's say $70,000 for a three page website. And she's learning how to do it in junior high school. So this industry is over, like it's going to end. And so <laughs> as the second I took over the company, I mean, I was always running, but the second I was full time there, uh, my only goal was to sell it. And because so, your sister was learning how to do it in junior high school. Yeah. You're like, oh, they can't, it can't, they can't keep paying me this $70,000. Can't keep paying me. Dennis Miller show website. I remember I did for our Chris Rock show website. I did for $75,000 and I'm like, not going to get away with this for long. This is like a crime. <laughs> and, uh, uh, cause it would, it's easy. It was easy for me to make websites. I'll tell you the critical problem I made, the critical bad decision. I didn't know about business then. And this was a valuable lesson. 
I had a service business. You would ask me to build a website and I would say, okay, it charges this because everybody works by the hour, blah, blah, blah. Instead, what I did was I knew software. So I wrote a bunch of software to help me make websites super quickly. In other words, I, I wrote like for myself, something like a WordPress. Mm -hmm. And uh, I should have been from day one, a product company because a service company is valued for roughly six times their earnings. Like if an ad agency buys another ad agency, they pay six times earnings. But if you go, if you're a product company, you could see like on the stock market, like, you know, Tesla trades for maybe 500 times earnings, 200 times mm. earnings. Product companies, because they're scalable, they could be, when they're growing, you don't know how valuable they're gonna be. They're gonna be super valuable. So I should have thought of myself as a product company instead of a service company. So eventually I sold for six to 10 times earnings when I could have been valuing myself at 30 or 40 times earnings. Uh, so that was a huge, and I didn't know that until many years later, like when, when really doing a post-mortem on, on the business. But I sold it after a, a year, one year to the day after going full time on it, I sold it to another, to a public company. And for how much? Uh, I, well, I personally made 15 million cash. And, and, and that was for something that, was not worth that kind of money. But the internet was so hot, like stocks were going up because they would buy, this company made like a material that puts out fires and they wanted to get into the internet. So they bought my company and their stock went from two to 48. So I, yeah. Whoa, hold on, hold on, man. Business is a weird world. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. It's weird. So, oh, because now they have this, this cool, okay, so at this point, at night, let's say 96, I'm 12. So I don't know what's going on. I just yeah. know we did have a little computer at our house and I just, I'd play like Mavis Beacon, like try to teach you how to type or like Napster. I was downloading stuff on Napster and that's all I really know about the computer. But you're saying at this time, if a company acquired a company that did this thing that's going to be this big craze in the future, it, 40 X is their company's value. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, look what, you know, the company one 800 flowers, they just added a dot com to their name. Stock went up like 50% that day. Goodness gracious. Yeah. So it's crazy how the internet was. And there was the internet stock boom, even though the internet wasn't quite a mature industry yet. Like not everybody was convinced. It wasn't really until like, I would say 2004, 2005 that, that people stops. I stopped hearing people say the internet was a fad, but, uh, uh, but yeah, the stock went up. I cashed out pretty close to the top. And, uh, but then I had some weird psychological problem. Like I started seeing other people making 10 million, 15, 100 million. And I'm like, I'm poor. Like I would look at I I don't have enough money. Like after I had never had any money in my life. After you just got a $15 million payout, you've yeah. never had that money before. Like I remember just reloading my broker's account. Like, okay, we just, we cracked 15 million and it was cash. Like I, I would trade around some stocks or whatever, but it was cash at, at this point at 15 million. And then I, I had a, like a mental psychotic thing going on in my head where I legitimately, it was like money dysphoria, you know, uh, like compared <laughs> to what people call gender dysphoria now. It's like, I really thought I didn't have enough. And that's of course, you know, I didn't feel, I thought money would solve my insecurity problems. So obviously it didn't. So I felt I needed more. And so then I would take huge risks, 
right at the top of this internet boom. And I, I remember the most depressing moment when I was at an ATM machine, which would went into the same account that had that 15 million cash and I had $143 left. No way. Yeah. And I had already bought like the expensive house and I didn't really buy a lot of things. I was mostly just investing, but not well. Okay. How'd and you blow 15 million? And in, in, I was really in, investing poorly. I thought, Oh, I'm, I thought I'm, I was smart because I've, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere is what people say about New York City. So I built this company. Obviously, I'm really smart. And I thought, oh, I'm naturally smart at investing then. But I didn't know anything about investing. Investing is another skill. It's a different skill from business. And I was just so bad at it. And I didn't understand anything about risk. And I blew all of this. I lost my home, kind of lost my family in the long run from it. I mean, uh, and I was so depressed. I thought like I had won the lottery and you can't win the lottery twice in a lifetime. And I just was, I was like suicidal. I was figuring out how to kill myself. So at least my babies at the time could have the life insurance policy. Oh my God. So, cause they, they wouldn't remember me, but they would remember the, the, the life insurance and where they would benefit from it. Cause I had just ruined, I thought I had ruined their future also. And which was really just all, everything I was thinking was stupid. Yeah. And uh, so for like a year, um, you know, as you know, I was, I was struggling to make ends meet. And so I had to learn some, like, because I had bought the expensive apartment at that time, uh, my mortgage alone was 18,000 a month and God. I had $143 left. So I would beg like friends, family, believe it or not, to let me invest their money, even though I had already proven I was a bad investor. But <laughs> what I did was I got obsessed with investing. So I read hundreds of books on investing. I'd never read a book on investing, investing before. Investing what though? Like what type of investing? Any kind. I'm, I can tell you about any kind of investing. And I, I, I felt, and this is not a skill set that people even do now. Like some people are, you know, invest in stocks. Some people invest in commodities. Some people do what's called like value investing, some people do arbitrage. There's all, some people do real estate investing, but I wanted to be an expert in all of it so that whatever opportunity, I needed to make money. Like I needed to make basically, you know, 30, 40,000 a month to survive. And which was crazy by, in by itself. So I started to learn and I wrote software. I had a software back. I wrote software. I used AI. This is back in like 2001, 2002, 2003. I used AI to figure out where the biggest opportunities were that day. And I would just day trade. I would just trade in, trade out like five minutes, 10 minute trades. And 2002 was a horrible time to be day trading because the market went down 20%. But I did it and I survived. Who knows how long I could have kept surviving like that. And then we finally were able to, well, we lost the house and moved to someplace cheaper. And so and then I also got, get, I, for the first time ever, I got professional gigs writing. So I was writing about my investing. Were you still, so you've been writing this whole time. You never stopped the writing. Never stopped. But I knew I couldn't write a novel. I had to write about investing. That's what people were paying for articles for. So it's enough, I became more and more of an expert. So then what happened was people started basically saying, hey, can I give you money to invest? So I started on one career track, I started to build what's called a hedge fund where I was investing other people's money and taking a, a fee. And on the other track, I was a writer. I wrote for the Financial Times, I was a columnist. I wrote for, I was a columnist for the Wall Street Journal, Yahoo Finance, thestreet.com, Forbes. And so, and then I would write 
books about finance. My first three or four books were about finance. Now I never, now my books are about completely different topics, mm -hmm. but that was the way I got into the backdoor way into publishing professionally. Got it. So you're trading, with, oh, and Kay, let me have that phone real quick because I think uh, Jay Hill is pulling up. So you're, uh, you're investing where, what were you, what were you investing? What were you I, trading? I was trading mostly stocks, but what I would do is I wait for my AI to sing. I wanted to take the emotion out of it. So I'd wait for my AI to signal that something was a trade. So yeah, AI in 2002? Yeah. I mean, AI was big always, uh, but mm. now AI is big with language. So that's what consumers use. But like you've you've been using speech recognition forever, like that's AI and computer vision is, is, has been around for a couple of decades. But I was using AI for stocks and to pick stocks. So I would notice I would have my AI search for patterns in the stock market. These patterns don't work anymore because new patterns work. But like if a stock, for instance, I'll give a very basic example. If a stock had a bad earnings and was down for four days in a row, there was like an 80 percent chance on the fifth day it would go up. And so I would make lots. I had like thousands and thousands of patterns uh that that i would trade off of where'd you get this ai from i wrote it so i, I was a software guy from from Just writing ai like trading bots really good yeah I wrote, yeah my first book was about using essentially ai to to trade again those patterns only one of those patterns i think still works like yeah. the more i shared my patterns they would almost immediately stop working so <laughs> like okay. i remember there was this one pattern i had I literally, I called it the ATM machine. Whenever this pattern existed, it was like 99% chance of working. And I, you know, I did it with, you know, you meet your community. I had some trading friends, so we would all do it. We'd all say the pattern's happening today. Mm -hmm. That's what, we're, that's our day. It's going to be the first 15 minutes of the day and then we're off. And uh, as soon as I shared that, I, I think I wrote about it on the street.com, uh, which is a finance website. And a friend of mine called me up and was like, what did you just do? Like, why did you share that? And I'm like, oh, you know, it's about, it's, no one's going to tr actually trade that. It never worked again. <laughs> never worked <laughs> I again. I know your friends was pissed. <laughs> All right, so you lose your house after you blow this 15 million. I get it. I know what's going on. Your business was rocking. But now you're falling behind. Teams buried in manual work, taking forever to close the books, getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. This is you. You should know these three numbers. 37,025-1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and much, much more. 25. NetSuite turned 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all your KPIs or key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Listen, there's power in having organization in your business, having all the information in one place. With disorganization comes poverty. Trust me, this is an unprecedented offer by NetSuite. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash social proof. That's netsuite.com slash social proof to get your own KPI checklist. Netsuite.com slash social proof. 
Question for you. Why do you want to learn a new language? Like, where would you use it? And how would it come in handy? Think about this, right? Listen, you always wanted to learn a new language. Well, let me introduce you to Rosetta Stone. It is the most trusted language learning program, and it's available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language that you really, really want to learn. Listen, I am looking to really dive deep into Rosetta Stone this year. I tried it. It's really, really fun because I always wanted to be able to reach a broader audience with my business. So we about to learn this Spanish. Espanol, baby. Listen, Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 different languages offered. So if you want to learn Spanish or French, Italian, German, Korean, Japanese, Dutch, Polish, 25 different languages offered. Also, um, it's fast language acquisition. So Rosetta Stone immerses you in many ways. For one, there's no English translations. So you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language. It's a very intuitive process, meaning you pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. And it's designed for long-term retention. Also, speech recognition. The built-in true accent feature gives you feedback on your pronunciation. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's also convenient. Like I said, you can use it on desktop or app um, with audio companion and ability to download lessons offline. And it's an amazing value. You will get a lifetime membership for all 25 languages, for any and all trips and language needs in your life, lifetime access, all 25 languages for 50% off, Rosetta Stone is offering you a steal of a deal. Listen up, y'all. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Social Proof Podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Do it today. In trading, I mean, uh, tra well, investing, yeah. right? And then you learn the skill of trading. And you're getting good at it. You're writing about it. Yeah, and, and finally I'd gotten kind of good at writing. So people were yes. paying attention to what I was writing. That's the gotcha. goal of writing is to get people to pay attention to it. Were you writing where? I was, I was writing on the finance sites. Gotcha. Wall Street Journal? Well, Wall Street Journal I started in 2009, Financial Times in 2004, Street.com, Yahoo Finance in 2002. So you built your name based off being a contributor. Yeah, yeah, in, in specifically investing. And then later I started writing more about, I got sick of the whole investing world and I started writing about my experience of losing money and coming back. And people used to warn me, don't do that. Then people will know you failed. They won't trust you with business stuff anymore. And I'm like, A, I hate business stuff. B, uh, does that mean everybody else in business lies? Because I know everyone else has experienced <laughs> failure. So I started writing this and I literally like 10X to my audience overnight because people don't care about, oh, is Apple a good investment or not? I mean, they do a little bit, but people more care like, oh, I went through this difficult time and I was depressed. How did I get out of it? And, uh, and that's what people really wanted to know about. And so that became really like my a much bigger audience for me. Gotcha. Okay, so now you're... You're a writer and a trader. I don't trade anymore. You don't trade anymore? No. Well, I'm talking about at, at this point in time. Oh, yeah, at that point in time. 
So you started a hedge fund. All right, so I lost money in a hedge fund. Okay. Yeah, hedge funds are a scam. Don't do it. I wasn't a scam. <laughs> I should add. I was taught. I was taught. Okay. So my for, my very first Thanks employee. You know, my first employee at at the hedge fund was this guy just straight out of college. Now he just finished a gig as head of crypto for Citigroup. So he's really moved up well. And but we were just talking the other day, and this is like 22 years later. We were just talking the other day, and it was like we were the only honest hedge fund like we didn't even realize the extent to which every other hedge fund we were involved with were like just sheer criminals <laughs> so, <laughs> why are they such a scam like it seems like such a good idea though great. Oh, when I was oh my god started making money oh, oh my god it's a great money. idea you 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 get 20 percent of the profits and you don't you do minimal work and a hedge fund's a great idea if you you know you i could go in, into that forever but Let's say there's so, I mean, there's so many ways. Like we, we've done a post-mortem. There was like 50 different ways we could have scammed people and we never did. It's amazing the self-control we had, but you have to sleep at night. Like that was, you know. Okay, give me the, give me the way, give me the way that you heads for just scamming people. Okay, there's a lot of ways I'll give you one. Let's say, um, let's say you're running a type of hedge fund that invests in other hedge funds. So for a while I did what's called a fund of hedge funds. People would invest money with me because they didn't know about hedge funds. And then I would spread it out to like 20 or so hedge funds that were diversified, that were diverse, diversified from the stock market and so on. So one time these guys came up to me and it was like some rich Italians. And they said, we'll give you $80 million to invest. And, and they didn't want to pay fees though. They said, it'll be good for you to have our 80 million because it'll give you more clout in the industry. Like that, at that time, that would have been a lot for a hedge fund. Now it's not so much. But what, here's one thing we could have done. We could have started our own hedge fund, put the 80 million with us, and then gone out of business and just pocket the 80 million. Mm -hmm. Some people were doing that. Mm -hmm. we, didn't, we didn't even think about that. We wouldn't have done that if we thought about it. Because again, there's a big, is great advantage to sleeping at night and not feeling like you did something wrong. And, but we knew people who did that. Like we're doing that all the time. And people, people then, then the SEC would figure it out eventually. They'd call you up and on, I heard people doing this on the phone, SEC, oh, you know, sir, the SEC's calling for you. Okay, first I'm gonna tell my bank to get the wire ready. Okay, SEC, how much money can I send you? Oh, $50,000 as a fine for stealing 10 million. Hey, banker, send them the 50,000 and then you just disappear. <laughs> so it was just, it was just massive scams. And I still think that they're scams. Like a mutual fund, they own Amazon, Apple, Tesla, Exxon, so do hedge funds. They don't do it and you pay hedge funds much higher fees. Mutual funds are scams. You go into a mutual fund, you're paying all their marketing fees. They don't tell you they have, they have to legally offer you the opportunity to not pay their marketing fees. And no one knows that. Every, everything in Wall Street is a scam. So I could, so, I could. So you moved from New York and came to Atlanta. Which is why I like your stuff. Because in the sense that this is real business. The guys you talk to, oh, I, I built an Instagram site and sold it for 110000 Or I do real, real estate's very real in a lot of cases, particularly like if, for individuals as opposed to big companies. Real estate, you know, you talk to real estate guys, like these are people really doing good business and you need, you, you need skills beyond just scamming someone. Like the hedge fund guys, are, their skill is really good at scamming and talking the game. Goodness gracious. Oh, because I got, I got got with it. 
hedge fund, man. Feel bad about it. Yeah, that's a good idea. But, but you won't do it again. Well, uh, maybe. It just or you'll call, yeah, t- <laughs> you'll call me the next time. You'll call me the next time. I want those people there, like, oh man, and I'll just ask them, "Are you a scam?" And they're like, "No, we're not a scam. Look at our paperwork." And I'm like, "Ooh, you're not a scam." Uh, but I had those same conversations right. with people, and I got scammed. And then that's how you learn what the scams are. Like I probably studied like well over a thousand hedge funds. Oh my god! And really learned how to find scams. You know, and just every deal, there's, uh, this. I don't, I mean, I could, I could do a whole, we've done six podcasts about scams on Wall Street. So, <laughs> but I remember one time this company calls me, oh, we, we're setting up all Africa for telecom and, you know, George Soros is investing and, and eventually in our next round, uh, Bill Clinton's going to invest and Tony Robbins is going to invest and blah, blah, blah. And they said, we just need $25,000 to close this round. And I'm like, you mean to tell me? Bill Clinton is sitting by his phone right now and asking, is James Altucher going to put in that $25,000 yet so I can put in my millions? Like, that's a scam. All right. Okay. A little scam education. I appreciate that. All right. So um, so you stopped doing that and then you become a full-time writer? Yeah. Well, no, I was always like involved in businesses. Like I never enjoyed business. That I never was obsessed with business like other things, but I somehow was, I was good at sales and I got to understand business over time. Like now we're talking, I've been in businesses for, you know, 25, 26 years. Mm -hmm. So over time I got good at understanding business. And so I was still involved in a lot of business stuff. I was on the boards of a lot of companies. I was an investor in a lot of companies, but yeah, the thing I loved doing was, was writing. That's what I would do all day, every day. Like, and finally I could do that without feeling, without getting thrown out of grad school. So it was a real pleasure for me after uh, over a decade, uh, uh, more than a decade before I was just doing it full time. But, but yeah, I started another business called stock picker, which was like a finance site without news. I sold that for millions. I went broke again after that, after buying a house and losing that house again. Hold on, hold on, James. You build a company, sell it for 15 million. Then you build another company, stock picker. It was a website. Yeah, it was a website. It was like a social media site for finance. So how did how did it operate? Uh, so the idea was you would sign up and you would share like your a portfolio of your top picks and it would allow it would show you who else had a sim, who else on the site had a similar portfolio. And, and then also I put all the great investors like Warren Buffett, Carl Icahn, all these guys, I'd put their portfolios in there. And so it would match you like, oh, your portfolio is like Warren Buffett's and here's what, and then there was message boards. So people would be commenting on the stocks and there was Q and A. So uh, you can ask a question and other investors would answer. So it was like a social site, you know, dedicated to finance. And it had very quickly, almost instantly had about a million visitors a month a million unique visitors a month and like a million, you know, subscribers. And, and it was making money on ads. So we, I had, I made sure I had an ad deal on day one. We were profitable from day one, never raised any money. And, uh, that's a whole story because starting a business, you have to play kind of, you have to play a little game sometimes. You have to get people excited before there's anything there. And so I did that Mm -hmm. to get ads before we even built it. And, um, uh, so it was very, it was, it was very good. It was very successful. And how much you sold that for? So we sold it all together for 10, but $10 I, million? Dollars? yeah. And we sold it six months after we launched, four months after we launched. So what? Yeah, it was great. And, <laughs> and, 
and the reason I, I, so in order to get popular and ads, I made a deal with another company, thestreet.com. And I said, look, this could be a valuable thing to add to your site. And, but, but I want you to put a button for it on every page. And then you have an overflow of advertisers. You could put all your extra ads on us. Have you been using Mint to manage your finances? Well, if so, I have some bad news. Mint's going away. It's shutting down. But here's some good news. There's an even better alternative. It's called Monarch Money. Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and are absolutely loving it. Did you know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce? Monarch, which is the top-rated personal finance app, it also has a built-in collaboration feature so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and much more. You can create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com forward slash social. And get this, Monarch has a tool that allows you to easily import your data from Mint so you can keep all your tags and categories. And unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up and to customize and to use it all together, okay? Monarch is absolutely obsessed with constantly improving a product. So they actually release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions so you can actually vote on requested features and you'll be able to see the product roadmap. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com social. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash social for your extended 30-day free trial. Look, black representation in media means the world to me. I remember watching Arsenio Hall and Montel Williams and Oprah Winfrey. I remember seeing these black voices and I thought, you know what? I want to control a room like that. The next generation, however, of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collections, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. And every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Schmurter to The Wire, Michelle Obama, the reparations, there's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Listen, black representation is important. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Here are a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast that center black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices uh, as very nuanced and black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths on NPR, wherever you get podcasts. And and they said, okay, well, we want some equity. And I said, yeah, I was thinking like three or four percent. And they said, well, we were thinking 50%. And I said, deal. Because I didn't have anything. (laughs) 
So so they're willing to like basically give me a hundred thousand a month in ads and all the traffic, and then I would have a company. I just had to build the site, and uh, and so yeah, right from day one, made a hundred thousand dollars a month, had million millions of subscribers in the Q and A that we had. Jim Cramer was on there day and night, like answering wow. people's questions. And so you ask him to be on there. Uh, well, he was part of this coming to street.com, but he just loved it. It was a way to, it was his first way ever to really directly interact with tons of his fans. Cause all his, he would talk about it on his CNBC show. So everybody would sign up. Was that your partner in the, yeah. oh, so y'all his company was, was, was uh, the street.com. So, and I used to help him with writing mad money, the TV show. And, um, so, so we were, we're still friends, but we were like great friends then. And, um, he, uh, and so, but the second we launched, I called up Google, AOL, Yahoo, Reuters, a few other companies, and I said, we're for sale. And I said, my half is for sale. <laughs> and so Google and AOL were really interested. And Jim Cramer was like, what are you, what are you doing? You, you can't, you, we just started the company. You can't sell your half right away. We don't want to be partners with Google. So this, they had to buy, he bought my half. So, uh, wow. so and that's how I was able to basically do it within four months of, of launching. And how did you waste the money this time, James? Uh, uh, yeah, it, doing, again, thinking that I wasn't having the same psychological issue where I was insecure that I only had like whatever it was then, like five, six million from it. And uh, I can't even tell you like how I, I again, it was, it was through long-term investing. I just didn't, I was good at trading, but I wasn't, I didn't still have the skill set for long-term investing and I blew it. And I remember like I bought a new house and I was like lying in this hammock and there was, it started to rain. And I was thinking, how, the, how did this happen to me again? Like, this is the worst. This is the worst feeling ever. Like I'm just going broke again. And it's, it was just, it's just horrible. People say, oh no, people have romanticized failure now. Like, oh yeah, I failed. So now I could be successful. No, it's just death. Like it's just horrible <laughs> to fail. And, and then I had to really look back and say, well, what's always going right for me when I'm going up and what's going wrong for me when I'm going down. And on the one hand you could say, oh, well, investing or this or that, but it's not really that it's like more like a deeper thing because I was really having these psychological issues about not recognizing when I had it good. And mm. I really had to get better at, you know, I, I kind of just for myself, it almost sounds like a cliche. I had to make sure I had to remind myself every day, Ask yourself, what are you doing for physical health, emotional health, creative health, and even spiritual health so that you don't fall into these traps again? So physical health, obviously important because you can't start a business if you're sick. Emotional health, you can't start a business if you're arguing with your wife or friends every day. Creative health, I started writing down 10 ideas a day. Not good ideas, but I'd write 10 bad ideas down a day just to exercise that creative muscle. Like so many people say ideas are a dime a dozen. It's actually really hard to be creative. Like yeah. your creativity muscle, it's a muscle. So muscles atrophy if they aren't used. So most people do not use their creativity muscle. So I made sure no matter what was going on in my life, and I do it to this day, I write, I bought these waiters pads because it's very easy to write short bullet point things. Yeah. And so I would write 10 ideas down a day down on a waiters pad. And, and that just kept me extra. Like I would write, any idea like, oh, here's 10 ideas for Airbnb. And I would send them to Airbnb, to, uh, cold send them. Here's 10 ideas for LinkedIn. 
And wow. odd things would happen. Like LinkedIn would say, hey, could, can you come over and, and we'll consult with us for a day on these ideas? Or Amazon, um, Amazon's, I gave, gave them 10 ideas to improve your self-publishing. And they're like, they wrote, cold wrote back, wow, this is great. If you're ever in Seattle, stop by. And I had never been to Seattle in my life. I said, I'm going to be there next week by coincidence. <laughs> I had no plans to go to Seattle. I booked my trip and I spent a day seeing all of Amazon's latest products and, you know, building strong connections with them uh, when they later on helped me promote my books and, and, you know, particularly the books that have done really well. And uh, so this coming up with 10 ideas a day has been the most game changing thing for me in my life. Like now, if I needed to start a business, I know I'll have enough ideas. One of them will be good. And, and all, and people say, executions, everything, ideas are nothing, executions, everything. You can't execute. Execution ideas are a subset of ideas. There's different ways to execute. I can book my advertising before I even have a website, or I could raise $2 million, build a website, and then try to find advertising. Yeah. So that's two different ways to execute. One is much better than the other, and it's based on how good you are, how creative you are at execution. So, man, I, you know, I, I, I can't get out of my head something I wanted to ask you <clears throat> earlier in the interview, but the 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 conversation changed. But I I still gotta ask you. I don't even know if it's like right right now. I told you it's gonna be a coaching session. <laughs> so I absolutely <clears throat> love and adore the podcasting space. I just love what's happening in the space. Uh, I do something called a podcast summit where it is the most electrifying podcast education two day experience you'll ever experience. And we're doing it again this year. July when do you 4th do it? 5th, July 4th or 5th this year. Uh, it was in Miami last year. It's in Atlanta this year. Wow. Um, but you were talking about how the computer industry was like super hot and it was just on fire. And I started thinking, man, that's how I feel about podcasting right now. Cause it's like just everyone's super interested in it and everyone's attention. Everyone listens to a podcast now, 10 years ago, people were like, what is a podcast? Right? So I like to hear your thought cause you are a visionary and you really see what's going on behind what everybody else sees what's going on. I like to know what you see in the podcasting space. Yeah. So it's interesting if you look at all the trends. So when do people most listen to podcasts? They listen to podcasts on their commute to work, like on the, in the car. They listen to podcasts at the gym. So those are two times they're doing kind of this monotonous activity like driving or working out, but they want to listen to something and learn while they're doing it. So they listen to podcasts. At home, people tend to listen to podcasts on YouTube. Uh, uh, so they watch the podcast. So I haven't, I love doing the podcast. I love podcasting and you know, I, because I started like, I mean, this is the ninth year I've been doing it. So I have a nice audience. I don't really do a lot of things to, it's hard work to promote something and to promote a podcast and to get attention from you. So I don't do a lot of the promoting, but things that have worked for me in the past is use every platform you can to engage. So, cause there's a lot of podcasts out there. Like there's 2 million podcasts. You, you land in New York city or LA on the airplane and at the airport, they're handing you a podcast. Like it's just everywhere. And, but for a while I was doing every podcast I was doing, I did it live on Instagram. So I did it as an Instagram live. So then I would engage, people would constantly see, Oh, he's doing an Instagram live about this at the beginning of COVID. I was doing this about COVID. And so, you know, tens of thousands of people started listening and they all became they all converted over to being podcast listeners. And, or another thing is I would hold Q and A sessions on 
Twitter. Ask me anything about investing, entrepreneurship, your personal relation, you know, anything. I was just writing. Um, and so I did that for years and years. Every Thursday from 3.30 to 4.30, I had a Twitter, like office hours. And I wrote for a lot of different outlets. And so every podcast guest I had, 10 things I learned from Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, 10 things I learned from Richard Branson. So I would always write articles. I would post it on every outlet I could find that like, whether it was free outlets like LinkedIn, Medium, Huffington Post, or if it was, you know, official columns like in the Financial Times or whatever, I would post everywhere 10 things I learned from each guest. I don't do that anymore. I probably should. But that was very key to engaging. Oh, he's got guys like this. Oh, he's learning this. I'd really like to see what questions he asked. And and how does Richard, Bran did he enjoy talking to Richard Branson or whoever it was? And I would even write books based on my podcast content. Like I wrote a book, uh, Think Like a Billionaire, where I took all the billionaires I had interviewed and made a book out of it. Mm. And so engage, engaging in like diversifying your engagement is really important. So that's how people find you because there's so many podcasts. But then even in the podcast itself, we're always playing, you always want to play with formats. Like sometimes I get tired of just, uh, you know, this is what I do too, which is I have on a guest and I interview them. But sometimes you want to experiment and just do something crazy. Like um, just you talking your ideas, like maybe you summarizing what you've learned or some experience you've had or something that happened to you last night and you do a podcast about mm -hmm. it. Or sometimes we would do like a series, like specifically, like we did Wall Street Scams. We did a, a series hooked on the first line. Like we, we, I would have on guests like famous. What's up, family? Listen, a new year for many people means resolutions to save money. So stop shopping without getting anything in return. Start getting cash back on every single purchase you make with Ibotta. Ibotta is a free app that gives you the most cash back every time you shop on hundreds of items from groceries to beauty supplies to toys. So you can make sure you're beating inflation no matter what you're purchasing. The average Ibotta user earns 145 bucks per year. And that could cover the cost of an entire shopping trip. Buy the flight you've been eyeing, that game you've been wanting to go to, or that fancy dinner you've been craving. Join over 50 million savers and earn cash back every time you shop from over 2,700 brands and retailers, including Lowe's, Macy's, Sephora, Best Buy, and more. Listen to me, family. Right now, Ibotta is offering our listeners $5 just for trying Ibotta by using the code SOCIALPROOF when you register. Just go to the Apple Store or Google Play Store and download the free Ibotta app to start earning cash back and use code SOCIALPROOF. That's I-B-O-T-T-A in the Google Play or Apple Store and use code SOCIALPROOF. The Enhanced American Express Business Gold Card is designed to take your business further. It's packed with features and benefits like flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business, 24-7 support from a business card specialist trained to help with your business needs, and so much more. The Amex Business Gold Card, now smarter and more flexible. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard writers or whatever but it's like who you know we'd all take our first lines of books that we loved and analyze them so that was great for writers so you diversify your audiences again like right now 
I've had on like three guests who are world famous, great chess players. And on some sites now I'm listed as the number one chess podcast. So that's a whole other audience that wow. suddenly you get exposed to. So um, you always want to experiment with, with format. Uh, you're, you're seeing a transition though between like radio and it kind of what's happening between radio and podcasting because you've been able to see people uh, uh, kind of uh, say, okay, I don't really listen to radio like that or watch TV as much. I listen to podcasts and I watch YouTube more. In terms of the industry, where do you think the industry is going as a whole? Well, here's, here's one thing I've noticed. Podca advertising on podcasts, and I'm not just saying this because I have a podcast. Advertising on the podcast has to be the most valuable advertising a brand can do. Like Casper, a few years ago, Casper mattresses uh, just blanketed the podcast space with ads. They were like a startup. Next thing you know, they're a billion dollar company from mm. podcast ads. So you can't do that from Facebook ads or Google ads. Like you're paying like a dollar per thousand views. Podcast is like, you know, $40 per thousand views or whatever the metric is. And, uh, it, it, because podcast ads are valuable. They're probably the most valuable ads of any type of show out there. So I think it, I think they're here to stay. Every company, you know, every media company, like you mentioned, radio, Sirius XM, they're the ones who place our ads. Like they treat us like they treat their radio shows. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I do think it's here to stay. I do think it's going to be more and more of a visual medium. And like, I, you know, don't like that as much, but, and I haven't really pursued that, but that's something I'm looking at pursuing more. And We'll see, but I do see I do see podcasting continuing to grow. But you have to experiment with format. Format is, and and everybody does, including me. Everyone does the uh, guest interview format. But every now and then, mix it up. For I, sure. And, I, and by the way, I mix it up with the writing. In in an article, I could just I could write an article in the first person, a story about myself. I could write an article in the third person, a story about you and your day. I could write an article in the in the Second person, an article about the reader. You're like, you're about to invest. Here's what you should be thinking about. Yeah. Or I can do an, uh, an article called epistolary style, two people writing letters back and forth to each other. One time I did an article in Kickstarter style. I did the whole article as if it was a crowdfunding campaign. So, And then I actually did it on a crowdfunding site, and it was a weird story. But <laughs> they had to cancel it because... I was raising money and everybody knew it was a joke. So, but people were putting in, I was trying to buy Greenland. I was trying to buy Greenland and. Trying to buy Greenland. Yeah. Cause I don't know if you remember this when it was 2018, Donald Trump, for whatever reason, made a tweet. I want to buy Greenland. And the prime minister of Denmark responded, it's not for sale. And I'm like, what the hell did I just say? Like, did, did Trump really use Twitter to try to buy a, a country? And what does Denmark have to do with Greenland? Like, why did, they, why did that guy even respond? Did I just see a whole negotiation for, like, the largest landmass in the world? On Twitter. On Twitter. Turns out Denmark owns Greenland. Turns out Greenland, the reason why somebody would want to buy it is it's the second largest source after China for rare earth minerals. So we don't have them, but China and Greenland have them. By the way, no one knows that China has all the mineral rights in Greenland, so Trump doesn't like, didn't like that, and no American president likes that. Wow. And so I figured, well, why let them own it? Like I, me and my friend should own it. And so I, I that's where your mind automatically goes. Like Trump yeah. can't get it, I'll own it. Yeah. So <laughs> so I did a crowd. So I wrote it as an article. So I did all this research about Greenland, and then I wrote it as an article. Like let's raise a hundred million dollars for Greenland as like a down payment. That can't buy the whole thing, and I. <laughs> 
if you if you donate a hundred dollars, you could be an Earl of Greenland. A thousand dollars, you could be a Duke. Ten thousand, you get a holiday named after you. You know, what? a little bit more, you get like a ten thousand acres. And so I did it as a whole crowdfunding thing. But it it's it was me experimenting as a writer to explain what was going on with why Trump and would do this. And uh, uh, and then I, I did. I think I did it on GoFundMe or Indiegogo, and people started like putting in $1,000 here, $1,000 there. I was up to like $20,000. And finally, Indiegogo, they call me and say, I'm sorry, man, we have to take it down because we know you're fooling around and we're going to have to owe all the American Express fees. So they shut me down. But experimenting is the key to keeping things going. You know what I want, James? I want the courage to do something like that. What's keeping you from doing it? I, don't, I, w- I wouldn't even have thought about that. Like, I, you see Trump talking to some guy from Denmark about Greenland, then I wouldn't go do the research, and then I wouldn't th- say to myself, hey, Zell, Greece, let's go. Man, we should buy Greenland. And then I'm not going to, like, put up an actual GoFundMe for people to, conv- to be convinced to give me money to be a Duke of Greenland, bro. I, don't, I, don't, I, I wouldn't even saw it. Well, okay, one, for, one rule that I always try to keep in mind, it's better to be the only than the best. And so maybe I could have written a book that would have been the best way for people to find out about Greenland and what, what's in, you know, all about it and whatever. Maybe that's the best way. But nobody has ever done a Kickstarter to buy a country that's not actually a country. I didn't know it wasn't a country. And so, so I was the only... <laughs> And it got, you know, people will report on it. So like actually in 2013, one time I did an experiment, I had that book, Choose Yourself, was coming out. And a month before I was going to release it on Amazon, I built a store, maybe the first store of its kind that only accepts Bitcoin. So I built an online store and it only accepted Bitcoin. And I, the only product in the store was my book. And for one tenth, Bitcoin was $100 a coin then. For one tenth of a Bitcoin, I'll send you a PDF a month in advance of my book, Choose Yourself. And so I did that. And I basically said I was the only store in the world accepting Bitcoin. And happens just so happens my book's for sale on it. And 60 people off of that bought my book. But CNBC had me on TV saying, you know, what is this Bitcoin thing? And... uh And I remember one time the anchor asked me, did you just do this for marketing purposes? And I I literally said, well, I'm on national TV right now. So it worked. (laughs) And so that was just like you want to be you want to always experiment. And that's why I write these 10 ideas a day down. So when I need that muscle, it kicks in. And it's really important that that muscle doesn't atrophy. If, If you don't let's say you get into. Uh, an, an accident on your bicycle and you're, you have to stay in bed for two weeks, you'll need physical therapy to walk properly after that. That's how fast muscles atrophy. And so, so I'm always trying to think of experiments to do with, with the things that I love doing. Um, sometimes it's more difficult than other times, but, and sometimes you lack confidence to do experimental stuff like, oh, is this too crazy? But you just... If pe- one another rule I have is if somebody tells me I can't do something, then I get really driven to, to like success is on the other side of can't. So nobody else can do it, but that's why I'll be successful because I'll be the only person doing it. Mm. So now don't you, sh- you you can't kill people and be successful, so don't do that. <laughs> but 
other things you can do. Let's say you own a company called PodcastSummit.com and it was an event coming on uh, July 4th and 5th. How does your creative mind work to make this the biggest event in the world? Where do you hold the event? Atlanta. Where in the, where at what location? We're at the Hilton this year. Right. So who 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 is like right now, who has been your most successful guest from Atlanta? My most successful guest from Atlanta could be you, but I don't know about that. But um, like Sarah Blakely lives in Atlanta, for instance, she's a billionaire. Yeah. Um the I don't know, like there's there's a lot of like you know, there's a lot of successful people in Atlanta. How, how many people come to the conference? Uh, it'd be fifteen hundred this year. Oh, fifteen hundred is a lot. I would try. I would try to think of like an odd place to do it, like a really strange place to do it. So, like the you know, like I never heard of a podcast conference. Like you know, Milana's got a famous aquarium. Uh, who owns it? Bernie Marcus, the Home Depot founder, um, or he doesn't own it, but he started it. Uh, that's not necessarily the right idea, but like just some odd place, and then odd activities and odd speakers, not just podcasters, but like people. You know, how does a magician get well known? You know, how do they promote themselves? And then, or, or I remember I was at a finance conference once and I had to speak after this guy, Apollo Robbins, who's famous as like the best pickpocket in the world. Like, get really odd speakers. Mm. And then while I was talking, we had, while I was talking, he was sitting, nobody knew what he looked like. He was just sitting around the audience. He pickpocketed everybody in the audience. What? And then he had them come up. And he gave them back their items one at a time. And that was his talk. And, you know, stuff like that is great. You want to make uh, everything in the world is entertainment. Even when we're talking about the most serious topics, no one's going to watch unless we can. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're talking about the, the Israel-Hamas conflict. No one's going to listen if it's not entertaining. Now, that doesn't mean you make light of it. There's lots of ways to be entertaining. Um, there are darker ways to be entertaining. And this is sort of like in the middle between dark and light. This guy pickpocketed everybody. But you have to view the summit as entertainment. And how can you be entertaining? So maybe, uh, you know, a, a food podcaster cooks for everybody. Or, uh, you know, maybe we all watch Joe Rogan interviewing um, Joe Biden. And it's a total AI-generated video. And that's like a 10-minute thing. So, so. Everything, don't just be like, how do you promote your podcast? How do you, what audio equipment to use? No offense, Jay. He speaks about audio <laughs> on podcast conferences. Uh, everything's got to have, got to be the only. And start from that mindset and you'll be the only. People will have to come back to your podcast, your, your summit, if they want to see the only things that are, you know, nobody else is talking about in podcasting. Oh my gosh. That was the best question I've ever asked in my life. I'll think of more too. Uh, one of the best I, answers I've ever gotten in my life as well. That was good. Uh, and and I didn't even really give any concrete ideas, so I'll think about it a little more. Maybe that'll be my tomorrow's list. But you, <laughs> yeah, that's what's up. But it, like, even as you, so I have like some sort of creativity. So as you're talking, right, it's it gonna, you're the expert, so it's going to make you think. 
I just pulled. Oh man, you're the man, James. This is good. Thank you. Um, I might have to put your picture up here somewhere. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, I won't be as recognizable. I <laughs> I recognize almost everybody up here, so I won't be as recognizable. Wait, uh, who's who's the second to the uh, from the left there on the bottom? Second to the Joe Button. Joe Button in the hoodie. Yeah, Joe Button. Oh, I don't know him. You don't know Joe Button? No. He has a number one music podcast. Oh, really? Yeah. All right. All He's right. beefing with Charlamagne all the time. So. It's cool. No. <laughs> like Charlamagne, I've been on Charlamagne's show. Yeah. But, uh, Y'all wrote a book together, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, we talked about that before, though. Yeah. The podcast. You yeah. Think I can get him at the podcast summit? Probably, yeah. He's, he's, he's got managers upon managers. So, but uh, I'm, you, could pro- you could ask him at least. Doesn't hurt to ask. Doesn't hurt to ask everybody. This is incredible, man. By I, the way, again, Sarah Blakely, Grant Hill, um, Jesse Itzler. They've all been on my podcast. They all live in Atlanta. Get like Jesse Itzler. Uh, uh, they're all, you know, billionaires or kind of like, or, you know, super famous. I'm just thinking of ones in Atlanta that have been on my podcast that I know about. And then, uh, I mean, there's a lot of people. Atlanta's a big entertainment center now. Yeah. Like after Master P on the mu- music side and Tyler Perry on the movie side. Uh, there's a lot of cool people in Atlanta. Yeah. You're so, goodness gracious, it's so good. So what do you, okay, last, what do you do now? What is your now thing? Or are you semi-retired? No, no, never retired. Uh, uh, But now I would say, so my most creative part of the day is like early morning hours. So whatever I'm obsessed with, that's devoted to the early morning. Mm -hmm. Then it's podcasts. Then business stuff is like the boring, easy stuff. So I do that later in the afternoon. Um, But I, I believe in this concept called quests, which is different than goals. So a goal might be, I want a promotion this year, or I want to make $100,000 this year or whatever. That's like a goal. And purpose is like, oh, I'm going to de- dedicate my life to peace on earth or whatever. But a quest is something crazy and improbable. And, and, but by pursuing this quest, you have lots of adventures. So I've been on a quest the past year or so, uh, so I was, I was a, a, when I was much younger, I was a tournament, competitive, strong chess master. So I was playing tournaments. I was New Jersey's junior champion. Uh, I played in tournaments all over the place. And I hit the master ranking. And then I quit. I quit to start businesses. I quit for 25 years. I didn't play chess basically for 25 years. And then just recently I decided I'm going to go on. This was, I loved this as a kid. Can I go on a quest? Can a person in their 50s uh, get back to how good they were when they were young? And everyone told me, uh, told me I was delusional. So far, they're correct. But, uh, <laughs> but I'm like, I'm, I'm good against old people. Like, I'm the Georgia senior champion right now. I moved here, and I quickly won the Georgia senior championship. But, uh, but, man, the whole world. obsessed right now? I'm obsessed, yeah. So, Five hours every morning I study chess. And, uh, really? Yeah, and it's the first time since 1990 that that time has not been taken up by writing. So I study chess. I have one of the best players in the world as my coach. I've flown, but the adventures are amazing. Because of my success in other areas, I, get, I got invited to write for the most important chess publication in the world. And I went to Norway. I had dinner with Magnus Carlsen, who's the best chess player in history. Uh, I've, I've been invited to observe all sorts of like great tournaments and play in these great tournaments. And, uh, I've, you know, I've represented 
the state of Georgia and the national senior championships. And so I still haven't gotten as the ranking that I had as a kid, but you know, I've, I've been on these adventures. It's these crazy adventures. And then you see people you haven't seen in 30 years and uh, uh, just lots of things, lots of things have happened on this path. And then also I, because I'm trying to learn, I've spoken to neurologists, like how does the brain change between being a kid and being older? I've talked to sports psychologists. I've talked to sports coaches. I've, ta- I've talked to, again, the best players in the world. And I've really had advent. I may never achieve the, que- the, the end result of the quest, but I've had many adventures along the way. What have you learned? For, tell me about this like neurologist, though. What did they say? Very interesting stuff, which is that when you're younger, you are your raw creativity is at its max. So you're really creative when you're younger, like up to like age 25, say. Mm -hmm. And you're also really great at like just raw calculation. So you could think many, in in chess, but in life, you could think many moves ahead and, and very creatively. And as you get older, that goes, after starting around your early 30s, that goes literally straight down, both those things. And memory, your memory is perfect when you're a kid. And when you're older, straight down and i had a really good memory to to as a kid i was very good so i had like a practically a photographic memory and my memory is really bad now so oh i've had lessons from the world memory champion as part of this adventure and for free by the way i'm not trying to do an adventure that costs a lot of money and uh uh, because i want everybody to know that these sort of quests could be cheap so uh uh, once he heard i was on this quest he offered to, to give me some memory lessons Um, but what happens though is as you get older, it's not all bad. Your ability to synthesize it, all the information you learned in the past that gets better. So you might, you might not be more original. You're more original when you're younger, but you're more willing to say, ah, this thing that's happening in Ukraine reminds me of this thing that happened in Japan, China before World War II, and that led to these bigger things. So history doesn't repeat, it rhymes, and you, you're able to synthesize things better. So as an example, the, av- the peak age for a mathematician is 25 years old. The peak age for a historian or even a writer is in their 60s. So because mm. the ability to learn from experience, people think that, oh, to be an entrepreneur, you gotta be young like Mark Zuckerberg. The average age of a successful entrepreneur is 60 years old. So. Uh, because you have all this experience and knowledge about human beings and life. And, you know, when you're younger, you take more risks. So, so in every area of life, you take more risks. So in chess, you're willing to, um, sacrifice more or, or take a gamble on a move that you couldn't quite calculate. And when you're older, I'm more afraid of losing than I'm desiring winning, which is a problem. And, uh, uh, so unfortunately with chess, as with mathematics, for instance, the things you lose are more important than the things you gain. And so that's why it's an uphill battle for me. Like my chess coach even tells me, I can tell a 15 year old this concept and he remembers the first time. You, I've got to tell five or six times before you actually <laughs> do, like you some, he says, sometimes I show you the same position on purpose that I showed you last week and you still get the wrong answer, even though we went over it completely last week. So the memory is just not as good. Mm, and so it's an, up, it's an uphill battle and you know, I don't know. On the one hand, my knowledge is greater because of this time I've spent studying, but my playing skills uh, I have not are not as good as they once were. I don't win as many games. Yo, man, you're so layered, man. Last question, bro. This is I have I have a million more, but we can't be here all day. But um, 
I would like to know where do you see yourself or what do you see yourself accomplishing in the next five years? And the only reason I'm asking you that is because I want to watch this interview five years from today. And I want to be able to say, well, this is what James told me he was going to do five years ago. And look, he did it. Well, that's, it's an interesting question because obviously I don't know what's going to happen in five years because I don't know if I'm going to continue to be. If you had asked me five years ago, I would have said, I hope I'm touring the entire world doing stand-up comedy. But I, uh, the switch turned on and off and I was suddenly interested in something else. Yeah. And, uh, but just a very basic level, I hope to succeed at this quest. I hope to write my next book about the adventures I've had along the way and other people who've gone on quests, the adventures they had, the benefits of to your life of having these types of quests and experiments and so on. And, you know, all through storytelling, I, I'd like to write other things other than nonfiction. So I think I'm very good at like storytelling, even in my nonfiction. So I want to apply that to fiction. Uh, and for business, I have no clue. I have never been interested in starting any business. I just kind of fall into them. So, uh, yeah. and I get out of them as quickly as possible usually. <laughs> so, uh, there's this one idea. I remember it's like 2016, there was a shooting and there was riots and there was all this thing. It wasn't George Floyd. It was like in the time, another time before that, it was really horrible. And, uh, so I started brainstorming with a friend of mine, started brainstorming. Why isn't there a solution? Oh, taser is non-lethal. Oh, it turns out one person a week on average dies from taser. I think let's just say alleged one person, but, but taser is no longer allowed to use the words non-lethal. So is there a non-lethal device we can make? And so we had some ideas. We called an inventor that we had once worked with. And this is what experience gets you. You have inventors you can call. Mm -hmm. And we came up with a device and the inventor really did, but uh, it shoots out a Kevlar steel cable that wraps around you at the speed of sound. And so like Spider-Man. Yeah. Yeah. So you're like That's this crazy. and you can't struggle. Like it gets a little tighter. And, and uh, so we had the inventor make a prototype and now we're in 1,400 police agencies. We're, I think we're in Atlanta, actually. Really? Yeah, it's a public company now. And I, I haven't been involved since the idea, but I got like, you know, shares and everything, but at, at, well, along with my friend. And uh, what is going on? Who are you, bro? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, uh, it's, it's not in the, like, you, there's stuff on YouTube. It's in Atlanta somehow. I don't know how, but we just signed some major order. We, like we, we just had our biggest order in history and it's really getting off the ground. Like it's, it's doing well. And I'm proud of it because it's, it literally saves lives. Like you can't get killed by this thing as opposed, I've seen so many videos of people now getting killed because as, as, as we were developing this and it's a really great thing. All right, man. Uh, you, you, you are, uh, you are a mind expanding conversation. Well, thank you so much. You know, really, I really appreciate This is the first non-remote podcast I've done in how long? Really? Three, three years. First podcast I've done in Atlanta, and I get asked all the time. So I really appreciate it. I really enjoy your stuff. Uh, definitely people got to subscribe to your Instagram account, which often links into the, the podcast, and it's just great. So, thank you, man. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Thanks for coming. Man. Well, look, man, uh, we appreciate you. Uh, on behalf of everybody that just watched this whole episode, I want to say thank you. Uh, because as entrepreneurs, it's like 
We're stuck in the only way that we think. And uh, you think so big and so creatively. And I think it's a mixture of all your experiences and the things that you've seen. It's always good to sit down with um, uh, someone that has uh, more experience. You know what I mean? It's like now yeah. the whole world is run by like TikTokers. Yeah. We get all our information from TikTokers. But I've enjoyed a conversation from someone who is wise. Oh, I appreciate that because I don't I don't normally think of myself as wise. But, uh, uh, you know, let, let me ask you a question. Do you think like do you get yourself when before our podcast episode, do you like pump yourself up somehow? Like, you know how in sports they all meet in the huddle and they go one, two, three, victory or whatever. Like, do you get pumped up before activities? Uh, no. Yeah, I've been wondering if that would be useful in, in chess actually to like pump myself up somehow instead of going in like, oh, it's a kid, it's a little Asian kid, I'm probably gonna lose again. <laughs> so. Yeah, I don't, I don't get pumped up over anything though. I'm real, I'm real like almost, not emotionless, but I'm very even keel and everything. I don't, I don't have high highs and I don't have low lows either. Yeah, I, I have both. So, <laughs> for better or worse. I want to be able to develop that. Like, I want to um, develop how I, I was on stage one time. Zell, that went up. I was on stage one time and we were doing like a panel, and my friend started, he was starting to tell a story and he cried a little bit. And, I, and all I could think of was like, ooh, I want to be able to cry. That's a good technique. Yeah. No, I do that too, though. Yeah. Like that's a good, uh, so sometimes when you're in entertainment, which podcasting is, yeah. you know, sometimes you think like that, like, oh yeah, if I do more of this emotion, yeah. you know, yeah, it's hard to avoid that thinking. So I'm not even doing that. it. Like I want to feel that emotion. Like I want to feel what do you feel right now in this moment to cry. So that's what I'm saying. I don't, I'm not like super emotionally connected to what's going on. I just like, do it and i'm just here why do you think you're not emotionally connected to what's going on like if you're speaking at a conference do you get nervous beforehand and happy after uh no i get well i'll get somewhat nervous beforehand and then i'm relieved after because i'm like oh okay that was, i did good it's over so one thing i would suggest even if you have to force yourself to do it is to really celebrate wins yeah because just genetically are we're more conditioned to think about the losses like they say in a marriage for every for one negative interaction you have to have five positive interactions to counteract it and the, and that's important yeah. because that's why we're alive as a species because if you if the leaves are rustling it might be a tiger so you, you can't just say oh it's beautiful leaves you have to run yeah. so you have to respond to negativity much more powerfully than you have to respond to positivity and I think it's really important to celebrate the wins uh, when you can. How? I just don't know. I don't know how. I've never been that. You know. Just jump up and down. Just do that for a minute. <laughs> just say, <laughs> like, I don't. I I get it. Like, I I'm more like thinking about the negative things to try to learn from them. But I've recently started like, you know, it's a way to practice positive self-talk which is which is really important for for life because so much of the brain is like thinking oh i need to th do this 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 i need this bad thing happen. i need to avoid that even if you're not emotional about it it's still you're thinking about it so you got to redeposit into your mental bank account you know the wins by 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 physically celebrating them mm. even if it feels forced 
It always it's, it felt it, it still feels forced to me. That's why I asked if it was worth doing. That's why I asked you. I asked everybody. Like, is it is it something? It's confusing to me because I feel like it's I'm bullshitting myself, mm-hmm. but you're not. You're telling your body this was a really great thing, and then it's like the Honda effect. You know, when you just buy a Honda, you suddenly notice all the Hondas on the yeah. road. It's when you know when you celebrate wins, suddenly you notice all the wins and opportunities everywhere, and that's why it's a good thing. Hmm. Maybe I'll attempt. I'll just yes. Yeah, do that. What else? Yeah. How did it sound? Was it cool? Convincing? I, I believed it. You believed it? You guys believe it? Maybe you know him too well. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. I'll, I'll just try it. Uh, like to really get excited. Like even after we do this event, it's going to be an amazing success. And then after it's all over, I'm like, all right, great. It's over. It's yeah. not like a, we won. I'm like, whoa. All right, I didn't fail. This is good. Yeah. Figure out some way. I get that feeling too, but like figure out some way. To, to just a little bit celebrate the success of it. Yeah. And okay. and that that's important for, for everything else. Yeah, I'm going to try that, man. I'm trying it too. That's why I'm, I asked the question. <laughs> Chase, I appreciate you, my brother. Um, please let everybody know how they can connect with you, how they can support any of your books, or how they can find you, and then close us out with a word of wisdom. Well, you can find me right here on David's podcast. This is where you should go and check out all his other episodes. For sure. And uh, a word of wisdom is add a little bit of experiments in, in your life each day. Like do something that makes you feel uncomfortable each day. And this almost seems like a cliche, so I'll give a very specific one. When you go, where do you get your coffee in the morning? Do you buy coffee in the morning? No. But if I did, we'd use a little Keurig or Starbucks. Okay, next time you go to Starbucks... Here's what I want you to do. Okay. After they hand you your coffee and they say, oh, it's $8 for a single cup of small coffee. <laughs> say, ask them, say, can I have 10% off? And they're going to, and then first they're not going to hear you because no one's ever asked them that before. So their brain won't register. And then they'll say, what? And you say, can I have 10% off, please? And they'll say, why? And you'll say, I, I, I just really want 10% off. Don't give them a reason. Do not give them a reason. Just like, and they say, you must have a, re- no, I just want to, I would really like 10% off. Can you do that for me? And they're probably going to say no, but just do it. Why? Because it's really, un- I found it to be really uncomfortable to do that. And now I, now it's not uncomfortable. So somehow there's some skill I got there about being uncomfortable wherever I'm at. If I, if I buy $80 worth of stuff at Home Depot, I ask for a 10% discount. And you know what? Sometimes they give it to me. So they don't know what they try call what at Home Depot specifically they try calling a manager there's no manager avail- available and they said okay sure so oh wow can you get Sarah Blakely on my podcast I could I could make the intro I haven't when was the last time when did we have Sarah Blakely on yeah so it was eight years so I'll see if I still have her email address but that's cool I will I will make the intro definitely I just got over my little thing right there no that's true and you know what that's going to get over my thing so since I moved to Atlanta I keep thinking I should reach out to Sarah Blakely and now it's going to force me to reach out to Sarah Blakely and her husband Jesse Itzler who's, who's yes Je- yeah. and Jesse is amazing too yeah and you know they're part owners of the um, the Hawks along with Grant Hill so uh, they keep telling uh, Grant Hill when he was on he says you have, I've never been to a basketball game Grant Hill's like you have to front row seats on me and I still it's so odd for me to reach back out to people I'm really bad with with keeping in touch with people ask Grant Hill we can go together 
That, that'd so be I have great. a friend that absolutely loves basketball, and he like had all your basketball cards. I love Grant Hill, and just tell him um, I have a friend that really wants to go. Uh, Jay, go. do we still have Grant Hill's email address? All right, we're gonna we're gonna go. Grand Hill specifically offered. We have the clip yeah. that you're gonna go to your first basketball game at the Hawks. Let's so. go, James. Thank you so much, man. This is so much fun and enlightening and educational for me. So on on behalf of everybody, I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. you. I appreciate it. Thank really you. appreciate it. Well, listen, man. Make sure y'all do yourself a favor. Make sure you find James. How? What's your What's your Instagram? Uh. Altucher, just my last name. Okay, Altucher. Sure, I'll follow you on Instagram. Make sure you're following James Altucher on Instagram. Go pick out one of his books. I want to make uh, the one book you said. We choose have a yourself. Book club. Yeah, choose yourself. We have a book club. We're gonna make it our book club read. And we're gonna read it together. So you're about a. We have a few hundred people in our morning meetup group. Oh, and cool! We're always reading a book together, and we take like a chapter a piece. We'll like read a chapter Monday night or whatever. Tuesday morning we discuss it, and we just. Piece by piece, and we do about fifteen books a year. Oh, that's great! It's yes. a great idea. So, yeah, I like so that idea. Read your book. So, thank you so much, man. Listen, do yourself a favor. Make sure you follow us, man. Go watch some other interviews because uh, he is a brilliant, brilliant individual. And uh, also, go get you some social proof. Meaning, go build something, build it really, really big, but come back to your community to teach them how you did it. It's the only way our community grows. All right, we're out of here. Peace. If you like the video that you just watched, click this one. You're going to like this one, maybe even more. Click it right now. The Enhanced American Express Business Gold Card is designed to take your business further. It's packed with features and benefits like flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business, 24-7 support from a business card specialist trained to help with your business needs, and so much more. The Amex Business Gold Card, now smarter and more flexible. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.